1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to take just the first 13 verses today. And as we take a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, we're going to see a topic today that actually is a continuation of what we have been talking about in chapters 8 and chapters 9. We start here, it says, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So as we take a look at the very first five verses here of the 13 verses we'll cover, We'll remember in chapter 8, there were two key principles that Paul taught us. The first one was that idol really is nothing. These false idols that they were worshiping are nothing. They're not great gods. They're just, these are things made up in the minds of people that were living in, in choosing darkness. They were just choosing to, not to want to worship God Almighty but worship whatever they want to, they can conceptually create in their own, with their own hands or in their own minds. But they're nothing. And it was fine for the Christians who understood this to act according to their knowledge, knowing that these were not gods, this meat that we were going to participate to, to eat, uh, to buy because it was cheaper, it was available. Whatever the reason they bought, they were buying that meat that was sacrificed, uh, part of it was sacrificed to the false idols, they recognized that the idols were nothing, so I, I'm okay to eat this meat. The second principle was the fact that Christians, that love is more important to us than knowledge. So even though I may know that I could eat this sacrificed meat that was to the idol, is it's all right for me to eat of it, but because it may stumble my brothers because they are weaker and they didn't understand that yet, that, that was idols are nothing, that they saw that it was something, that it was causing a brother to stumble. And because their knowledge was not in line with theirs, they recognized how important it was out of love not to eat the meat. They're going to give up the right to eat the meat. Even though it was fine, they're going to give it up because it was stumbling my brother and I love my brother more than them eating my meat. It's, it's more important that I love my brother and not stumble him. So I'm just going to avoid it. I'm just going to stay away from it. No touchy. So that my brother will not stumble and cause my brother who was convicted not to eat of that meat, not to draw him in and cause him to eat that meat. Because I did it. I had the freedom to do that. In chapter 9, Paul shows how important it is for the Christian to give up their rights, and he used himself as a perfect example of having the right to be supported by the ministry, supported by the believers, as he goes out and preaches and teaches and encourages and starts up churches, that these churches, the people of the church, would support him and his family, if he had a wife, would, it's all his perfect right for them to be supporting him and to be able to receive that. That, uh, that, that gifts to, to, to the food and whatever provisions to keep him in the ministry doing what God's called him to do. But he chose not to receive the support financially to be able to be in the ministry. He chose that it was, it was perfectly fine for him to not cause others to be a burden or stumble. And he chose to continue to do his secular job of doing tents, making tents and building, working with leather. And he chose to do that so they'd become no burden on the people. So that at no point that the people, you know, he had the freedom to, to speak the truth, to preach the gospel, to go where he needed to go, and then it wouldn't be a stumbling block for the people. 
And it was a stumbling block in a way in the fact that people wanted to, didn't see him quite as the apostle that he should be because the other apostles were receiving support from the ministry. Why wouldn't he take the support? Is he not an apostle? So they were questioning even his position as an apostle. But he used this as an example. He says, wait a minute. I'm not going to stumble people. I'm not going to cause a hindrance from people to come, to sit, and to learn, and to grow. And from a financial perspective, I'm going to be fine. God's going to provide for me. It gives me a, 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 the ability, the freedom to give. And out of the principle of love toward a weaker brother, I will give up my right, and I will do a good thing by just being able to pour back into the people and the people won't think that I am only preaching for the money. I'm only preaching because it's a job. I'm only preaching because I want to have a position of power over the people. I want to, I want to, to be a, a pastor, or a, and in this case the apostle Paul says, I'm not going to be in a position of power because I want to be in power. I'm not going to do it because I want the money. I'm not going to do it because you have to gloat over me and to, to worship me in some form or fashion because I happens to be an apostle. No, none of that. I don't want any of that. I want you to worship God and God alone. And that is true today. We're not to worship a pastor. We're not worship a church. We're not to worship someone who wrote a bestseller book or has a that seems to be gone viral on the internet. Because it's a danger that God has shown us that you will start heaping up multiple teachers. It's a sign of end times. And so Paul used very clearly in chapter 9 shows how a Christian must be willing to give up some things, even good things, right things, for the sake of winning the race that God had put him in, that put you in a race to the end. That race that God had set before us when he called us and gave us a calling to do what he's called you to do. Or else we would become disqualified and we may not finish well in our walk with Christ. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Now, Paul says here in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers. Now keep in mind, he says our fathers. Remember, these are Corinthians. These are Gentile believers. These are not Jewish believers. But he makes a link and brings them into the fold, as they say, to show this is speaking to you as well, Corinthian Christians. And he's going to use the Old Testament all the way through these verses as examples, as we will see, as good example. But he's also going to bring that to light and how that can be a very dangerous example then and now. And it pertains to you and I. But he sits there and he says to them that the fact that he, you may not, you may be unaware that all your fathers. So Paul is basically bringing to light the dangers or the dangers that can come about of, of examples that he will use as his, the forefathers, those Jewish fathers, as they brings, as Paul highlights this Israel's experience coming out of Egypt, coming out of bondage, and how God is going to use that to reflect an understanding of what his point is that he's been making in this letter here in chapters 8 and 9. And as Paul here highlights these examples, these principles to these Gentile believers, he says that our fathers passed through the cloud. So after being released from bondage, you know the story that God has brought the plagues and brought on Pharaoh and the people to cause them to add a pressure to let my people go. And they went into the wilderness with a very clear objective and mission. Get you out of bondage, out of Egypt. Get you across the desert in a straight line. You're going to go across this river and you're going to go into the promised land. And that is where you're going, to the promised land. That's all they knew. God gave them clear direction. They didn't know what was going to happen in between. They just know that they were going to this promised land. 
that God was going to free them from this bondage. They found themselves in Egypt. But as we know in the story, God's people were led through the wilderness, not some haphazard way, not by some, some random chance. They woke up this morning in the desert and said, mm, get the sand out of my teeth. What are we going to do today? How are we going to get to the promised land? I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know, honey. What are you going to do? Are we going to go today? I don't know. There was nothing like that. Why? Because God gave them a cloud we see in verse, verse 1. What kind of cloud? It was the cloud of the Shekinah glory. God's presence hovered above and oversaw them their whole time in the desert. God never left their presence. And when the cloud moved, they were to be obedient and to move with the cloud by day. Why a cloud? Well, you're in the middle of a desert. Some of you have been in the desert. You know how hot it can be in the desert. There's three million people God is bringing across the, the, the desert to the promised land. So he brought himself the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, the cloud, came by day to provide the covering and protection of his people. But it wasn't just a covering. It was also he used the cloud to guide them by each day of their life. When the cloud stayed, they didn't move. Regardless of how they felt, oh, I don't like it up here. It's kind of hot. I want to get to the promised land quicker. Pack it up, woman. Here we go. We're taking you and the 10 kids. They didn't do that. They waited for God to move. And when God moved, they were obedient and moved, even if they didn't feel like it. God, I'm about to have a baby here. We can't move right now. This is a bad PCS time. Well, God says we're moving. He's going to give you the strength to do it. Do you trust him? And during the night, it was a pillar. It turned into a pillar of what? A fire to warm them in the time of cold time at night. Provide the necessary light. If they weren't in complete darkness, God is always going to light your path. It's straight. It's good. As long as you follow him, it's straight. It's lit. It's good. It's protective. It's clear. It's a day-to-day walk. That's why the cloud, God gave him a cloud. And we see all that in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, how they were as a reminder of God's glory and presence with them every single day. And God used his glory to guide them when the cloud moved or when it stopped. They knew that God was in present with them and it was okay just to be still or it was okay when to move. Why? Because they were trusting in God's direction, God's movement in their life. They weren't directing their own lives. Are you tracking with me? Are you tracking with me? Say amen. Are you tracking? Yeah? We don't, we don't dictate to God when we're going to move or when we're going to stay. Amen? Are you I guess with me here? Is this a pretty tough already this morning? We're just talking about a cloud. We haven't got out of verse one yet. <laughs> this is going to be tough today, I can say. Here we go. I love this example, though, because now as we journey through our life with the Lord, we've got it made because of, of God's example he's given us. We can hold on to that example. We can actually trust, God, you've, you're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You guide your people. You're going to guide me. I'm your child. It's not a question of uncertainty. It's a question of certainty. And it's by faith. And it's not by sight. But God is so gracious to even show us, even by sight, when he's ready to move, you can see it. You just know it. Even when people say, are you crazy? You're not going to go there, are you? 
Yes, because wherever God guides, he provides. It's, it's a certainty, not uncertainty. We also know we don't have to strive and to struggle to determine the will of God. What's the will of God? What's the will of God? All we have to do is just be still and to be in his word and to listen and to watch as he guides you. As doors close and doors open, you just know that he's right there. There's no struggle and striving because if you strive to obtain, you will strive to maintain. We don't want to do that. So the question always is, is how do you know if you're in the will of God? How do you, how do you, you know, you don't have to convince God what to do because you're not going to convince him what to do. You're just struggling with God and what he wants to do. But all you have to do, as we learned last week, is what? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Where's the shade? That's all you have to ask. Where's the shade? Where's the covering? Where's the... You just have to ask, God, where's your shade? I want to just be in your shade and stay under your covering, under your protection. That's where I want to be. Because if you go and say, I want to go over here, how do you know his cloud is going that direction? His shade is going to be there. His presence is going to be there for you. Let him guide in this certainty. And then we see in verse 2 and 3, he says, All passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. See, God led all of Israel through the Red Sea. The cloud led them to the Red Sea. The cloud, the presence of God, put them in a position where they could not turn to the left or to the right. And they couldn't go back because here comes the army ready to destroy them. So they're completely in a position that they have to be completely dependent upon God. And how many times has God put you and I in a position where you have to completely depend upon God? So you're looking up to his presence. But that cloud, that fire, provided protection and kept the enemies at bay while God's presence then, what? Opened up the water miraculously and held the water back. Now, keep in mind, the people were sitting there going, we're all going to die. Because by sight, that's all they could see, right? We're going to die. We have no place to go, nowhere to go. How is God, why did we? All the questions flooding their mind. Versus just looking up and saying, God, you guided us here. You obviously have a plan. <laughs> we don't know what that plan is yet. But there's a plan. And then all of a sudden, just at the last minute, what? The water's open. He takes the entire three million across the water, not on water, but on what? Dry land. Dry land. But then what he does is what? The enemy's still coming after him. He then uses the water. To stop the enemy. And destroy him and take him out. Did the people have to fight? Did people have to take up their brooms and picks? and They had no other means. Did they get their goats in front of them? Go forward. Go buddy. Go buddy. Go Billy. Go get them. No. They, no. Nothing had in their hand. They had to completely rely upon what God was going to do. And not take it into their own hands. They had to still trust to go across that water. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. Have you? They had to trust that that water was not going to come on top of them. It may feel like you're swimming and your nose is just above the water line, but God promises to bring you through it. So it's like Moses in the fact that... that uh, they were all baptized. They were all brought through in that protection. 
that this Egyptian army, as we saw in Exodus 14, verses 21 through 31, was closing in on them so quickly. And it was not only an amazing demonstration of God's love and power, but also a picture of baptism then, but also a baptism of water that he's linking Paul now with those Corinthian Christians that says all of Israel was identified with Moses even now. As by passing through the water, a Christian is identified with Jesus Christ. We see that in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Their life changed when they went through that water, didn't they? What God had already planned, already had in their lives, they were already his children, bringing them through. But how dangerous this example is then and is now if we do not trust God. They had to trust God. We too must trust God. We must understand that. Regardless of what you don't see. Regardless of how you feel. Regardless of what you can see in front of you, and you don't see how all this is going to change this terrible, terrible situation in your life. But God is in control. He's in your presence. He's guiding your life. In verse, we see in verses 3 and 4, we see the fourth and fifth things that we want to emphasize. Here's all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. All of Israel was sustained. All by the miraculous hand of God, his provision of food and drink during their time in the wilderness. Paul spoke of the manna that God provided to Israel for 40 years. We see that in Exodus chapter 16, verses 12 through 35, and chapter 17, verse 6. God provided manna, food for all the people. Day by day, daily provision. And the water he provided them, at least twice we see in the scripture, Exodus 17, 6 and Numbers 20, verses, uh, verse 11, we see that God himself provided, he's the rock, provided the water necessary to make sure these three million people were provided for their thirst. This is a remarkable display of God's love. Remarkable display of power for, by God for the, the people of Israel. But it, again, Paul is making the link here. Look at what happened to the fathers. God miraculously provided for the people. The food and drink. The rock, as we will see, is Christ himself providing the nourishment, providing the refreshment needed in a dry land. But you as Christians, you Corinthian Christians, you too have been provided as a pre-example of the spiritual food and drink we received at the Lord's table that we see in verse Verse or chapter 11 here today, but also in the next couple of weeks, chapter 11, verses 26 through 23 through 26. God is who we come to the table. We come to him because he provides. The people came. He provided for the people. Israel is even it had these two Christian sacraments we see right there in the Old Testament that we receive today. The baptism and communion. The, world's, the word sacrament was used for the oath of allegiance which the soldiers of the Roman legion took to their emperor. There was an oath of allegiance that they had as a soldier and they, those two sacraments were there. Well, today the same thing is for Christians Consider. Communion and baptism is to be an oath of allegiance unto Jesus Christ. It's our sign of allegiance, our oath to our, our Lord, our Savior. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, some commentators will tell you there was, there was only basically one, maybe two rocks that Jesus showed up. And, and water flowed out, and it was just a stream, that continuous stream that the people were able to partake of while they were in the desert. 
Some believe that the rock followed them around the entire 40 years. Either way, it's the same principle, isn't it? He provided himself and provided the necessary provision, practically water, for them to survive. He provided. He supplied the water, the living water, like streams, like a, like a tree planted by the river. And that tree brings up that water for nourishment. The leaves don't wither. They actually become very fruitful. And when we feast upon, when we drink and we come to the Lord and we, when we're thirsty and we come, he provides, we'll never thirst again as a children of God. He will provide for you. And when he does, it will have fruitful lives. It will be like that tree planted by the water. But the challenge is this, even though that Christ has provided this eternal source of refreshment, John 7, 37, there is a danger here. The example that is provided is a dangerous example then and now if we are not content and thankful to God what he has provided. Very dangerous for us to not be content what God has already provided for us or thankful for what he's already provided for us. But he continues in verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Despite all the blessings that God gave the, the, the people of Israel and all the spiritual privileges that he gave them, the Israelites in the wilderness did not please God in their actions. Most of them, it's interesting as Paul uses most of them. If you know the story, out of the three million Jews, only two men from the adult generation of 20 years and older actually went into the promised land. It was only Joshua and Caleb that were only men that were faithful and believed not by sight, but by faith that God had called them to the promised land. You know the story? The 12 went across. They went into the promised land. They saw giants. They saw incredible. All Joshua and Caleb saw is look at the fruit, man. Let's bring some back so they can see it. This is going to be a land of honey and, and fruit. Oh, this is going to be awesome. But the problem is, is the other 10 came back and said, oh, there's giants. There's walls. Dude, there's no way. That's not going to happen. They're going to kill us. The fear of unknown became more dominant than the faith in the power of God. What God was going to do, they said, God is not a big enough God to take care of is really what they're saying. That's where fear comes from. The fear of not believing that God is more powerful than your situation. Being without having a vision and understanding of what God's called you to do and showing you what God's guiding you to to the promise. They said, I don't care what God is saying. I, I don't like the giants. I don't want to go there. I'd rather go back into bondage, go back to my old life, than to live for what God has for me. That's what they were saying. And because of their disobedience, because they chose to listen to those ten, the people chose to rally around the ten who were in fear, and not the two who came back and said, no, this is what God has got great plans for us. All of those men and women, those adults, died in the wilderness. As, as Paul says, their bodies were scattered. Their dead bodies were scattered throughout the wilderness. They just wandered around for 40 years. God had a straight line for them to the promised land. They chose, and their decision not to be obedient caused them to wander for 40 years. Paul's point hits very hard to the Corinthian Christians because like the, like the fathers back then, 
And the Corinthian Christians today, then as he's speaking to them, talks about the same thing, all sorts of these liberties. Oh, they had all kinds of liberties. Oh, they can fat, they had freedom to do this. They were no longer in bondage. They had God had provided here, showing them this and doing that. All these experiences, all these fun, all these great things. They even said, oh yes, we can even go to the pagan te- temple restaurant and eat the meat. We have freedom. This, uh, idols are nothing. We got such freedom to do all that. And the problem is, they were so safe in their newfound position in Christ, thinking they were safe because of their past blessings or past spiritual experiences. I'm not worried. I was baptized. I'm not worried. I do communion. I'm not worried. I go to church at least a few times a year. I don't worry because I read my Bible. I carry it everywhere I go. People rely in these Corinthians. We're starting to rely upon their experiences versus a relationship with Christ Almighty. That happened then. It happens now. And that's the danger. The dangerous example of then and now is that we are not obedient to God and what he's called to you to do out of a relationship as their Lord. They choose, we choose to go based on experiences and say, I'm fine, I'm safe. Because I do communion or I got baptized. But remember, you and I know what the scriptures say. You're not saved because you got baptized. You're not saved because you take communion. You got baptized, you take communion because something has already taken place in your heart. That is by faith alone, in Christ alone, you turned your life over to Christ and was saved. That is how it works, by faith alone. Not out of works. Not out of things what you can do. Those are just natural responses of his children to do communion, to have communion, time to communicate with your Lord. Baptism is just to reflect, to show those around you that what has taken place, a change of heart. In August, when we have our annual baptism slash picnic, I pray if you've never been baptized, that is a time for you to be baptized so you can show your brothers and sisters what God has already done in your heart, that you're already saved. You've already took that step of faith. But you are, you're not afraid or let alone, you're not ashamed of what God did in your heart. You're willing to reflect that and to show that to your brothers and sisters. Now he continues in verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become adulterers, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit, uh, let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also attempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain. As some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. So Paul here in these next several verses here, he starts by saying, and now these things became our examples. These are examples, Corinthian Christians. Christians, these are examples of what I'm trying to refer to you. Because here's the people, they're out there in the desert. They could have gone right to the promised land. They were covered. They were protected. They were guided. Everything was going to be great. But because of their disobedience, because of the fear, because of their not willing to take it based on faith, they wandered for 40 years. And what caused that? He outlines it very clearly here, Paul. He outlines five things that caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years. What were they? Well, he learns, he says, learn from Israel, the Israel's failure in the wilderness. He says they failed in that, that they could not say no to their desires. 
That's really what it is. They were lusting after their own desires. That is why they wandered and didn't go to the promised land. Their life was about, what's my desire? Oh, I have these desires, and I want to fulfill the lust of those desires. That's going to cause a problem in your Christian walk, Paul is saying. The Corinthian Christians who insisted on eating meat, sacrificed to idols, even though they were leading other Christians to sin, into sin, just, they just couldn't say no. The meat is so good, you don't understand. My family needs to save money. It's cheaper meat. You'll rationalize and justify anything to do what you desire to do. But the problem is, is they could look at their brother and say to them, I know this may stumble you and cause you to eat it, even though God is showing you not to, at this point in your heart not to do it, but I'm leading you to it because I'm doing it. That's your problem. You're weak. Brother, you have a problem. If you get yourself straight and you would just mature a little bit, and you would be able to partake of the cheap and great meat like I am. But if you truly love God and you truly love your brother, you would abstain and say no to that desire for the sake of others. That is true love. That is, you're not going to follow through with the lust. There's, they, they were not satisfied or content with what God had provided them. How many people even today now are not content or satisfied with what God has provided and given them all? But let me tell you, my brothers and sisters, contentment is great gain. Being satisfied with what God has provided you will give you a sense of peace and joy. But if you're always lusting after more, I'm not satisfied with the car, I'm not satisfied with the house, I'm not satisfied with this, I'm not satisfied with that, then you're going to be striving to obtain more than what God has provided or has guided. All you have to do is st step back away from those worldly, fleshly desires and just ask and be content and satisfied with where God has you. And you'll be amazed of the transformation in your life and your family's life. Simple decision. He goes on, he's, in verse 7, he shows the second thing that they did. And did not become adulterers as were some of them. See, Israel failed to keep their focus on God. They started giving themselves to idolatry. We see that in Exodus 32, 1 through 6, and Numbers 25, 1 through 3. And even the Corinthian Christians were not only getting too close and in their association with idols, they were also making an idol out of their own knowledge and their own rights. Do you realize how much I know of the Bible? Do you know how much I can quote it? Do you know how much I know what my rights are as a Christian today? I get to do whatever I want to do. If you don't like it as a my brother, tough luck. See, that mentality of putting yourself or others before God is idolatry. Now, this might, this, might, this might ruffle your feathers a little bit here, my brothers and sisters, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you turn to an author or turn to a pastor today, and you put their words above God's word, their ways before God's ways, that's idolatry. Are you tracking with me here? You do and I do not want that to happen in our lives. We want the sound truth, and we want to walk 
in truth and in spirit. And there is no other way. If you really want to stay away from the dangers that comes about with idolatry, it caused the Israelites to not enter the promised land. Verse 8, he gives another one. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. So those in Israel were committing adultery, surrendered to the temptation of sexual immorality. It even says here in this verse that they rose up to play, quoted from Exodus 32.6. And we know that the Corinthian Christians were having problems with sexual immorality themselves. Back in chapter 8, verses 18 through verse 20, they saw that they were also having problems with sexual immorality. But here in the context of what Paul is saying suggests that their fleshly desire to please themselves expressed in this perspective their right to eat the meat, whatever they want, caused them to follow into the sexual immorality. Their, Their life started spiraling out of control. They even got to the point in their life that as we see in the Hebrew language, they're, they, they, They rose up to play, which means they rose up in a sexual immorality. They were probably in these drunken orgies that were taking place as we see in the scriptures. Their lives started getting twisted. Going completely outside of the boundaries of what God had set for them and for their safety. And the result, as we see in the verses here, in one day, 23,000 fell. A plague, God brought a plague. 23,000 were wiped out. Now this is a little interesting as you've probably studied the Old Testament. He, in the context, he sits here and he quotes out of Exodus. Exodus 20, or 32 verse 6 here. And, and we know when we read that, there was only how many that died? 3,000. So how did it become 23,000 here? And he references, well, one of two things. A, he was talking about 3,000 men and maybe 23,000 women to make that 23,000. But in the scriptures, we also know he probably was referring out of Numbers 25, verse 9, where there was 24,000 that died of the judgment of God there in the wilderness. Well, Corey, that doesn't line up with what we're reading here of 23,000. Numbers says 24,000. How does that reconcile? Well, many commentators say it was 23,000 that died in one day of that plague. But in that following time frame, that following week, another thousand died, making it 24,000. Either way, there are consequences to someone who sits there and says, I am going to have a sexual immorality problem as a Christian in my life. It can cause a danger for you. It can bring and result to death. Result to death of what? Death to your marriage. Death to your physical Death to relationships. There's death in all aspects, physical, spiritually, mentally. When you go outside of the parameters of what God has for your life. When it comes to sexual immorality. Then he continues here in verse 9 with another fourth and fifth things that happened that caused Israel not to enter the promise. He says, nor let us tempt Christ. And some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And also, nor complain. So he enters two more things. You cannot tempt Christ and do not complain. Murmuring and complaining will cause a problem in your spiritual walk. We see in Numbers chapter 21 verses 4 through 9 describe the incident where in response to the complaining of the people, God sent fiery serpents among the people. Their hearts had turned to go against God, complaining against God, what he has done and why he was had him where he has them. And he was complaining and complaining and complaining. And it brought judgment. Because their hearts were so self-focused, so selfish. They were more concerned about their own desires than the God's glory. And Paul is saying to them as Corinthian Christians, 
do you realize that right to eat meat because that is what you want? You're so selfish because you want that meat so much and do it the way you want to do it? Do you realize that selfishness, that self-focus is going to bring about danger for you in your walk? There's consequences for your selfish heart, your self-focused heart. And because of the warning we see here in the very first five verses of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, it seems as though the Corinthian Christians believed they were safe from danger of being destroyed. We're fine. We're saved. We can live our life, our Christian life, however we want to. Even if it's against God's word, against his will, against going against... I, I'm saved. I said the prayer. I believe he's, he's the son of God. He's died on the cross for my sins. I have no... But I'm going to now just live however I want to because I, I, got, I take communion. I got baptized. But Paul is saying to them, like the Israels, Israelites were destroyed because of their past... They relied upon their spiritual experiences and accomplishments. Paul is warning, if it happened to Israel, it can happen to you. You must be on guard. Then he wraps it up here for us today in verses 11 through 13. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition or instruction. This is for our instruction. That's for you and I to learn from instructions. For those who don't like to read instructions, to guys, today's the day. Fathers, you need to read instructions because this is for us. Upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Those who think they're pridefully think they stand just fine in their relationship with God, even though they're playing with fire. Take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overcome, overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So Paul says it very clearly to the people. Everything I'm just telling you here, I'm writing to you. This is examples to you. This is for you to learn from examples. For you out there who, Paul saying, for you out there who trust only in what you think, that you think you just stand just fine because the way you think must be always right. If anyone contradicts you, even the scriptures, that's wrong. I'm always right. That's pride. You're going to fall. It's just a matter of time. I'm giving you examples. Israel was an example to you, Corinthians, believers. And they're examples for you and I today. Learn from those examples because you do not have to live out those examples yourself personally. Oh, you've heard me. If you've been around men's fellowship, you've heard me and I probably said it from the pulpit. For the, the thinking that goes on today where people say, well, they just have to learn through example. You're absolutely correct. But what people say is, let the boy fall. Mother's going crazy. Dad's like, oh, he's, t- he's teetering 10 feet from the top. I don't know how he got up there, honey, but he got up there. I only left the room for just a second, and the mother's going crazy. How can you allow the son to be climbing up the wall? He could fall and break his neck. Well, he has to learn from example, doesn't he? No, that's bad thinking. Paul is saying, and I, we need to learn. We must learn from others' examples. We don't have to go through. You don't have to tell your child, touch the stove. Mama, just turn the stove on. Go over there, Billy. Touch the stove because you need to learn. It's hot. That is stinking thinking. You must sit there and say, hey, do you know Mr. Bob, your teacher? 
At church? Yeah. Do you remember all those big scars? Yeah. That's because he accidentally got burnt in a fire, like touching a stove. Did you see it? Ooh, man, Mr. Bob, that must have really hurt, Dad. Yeah, that's why we're going to learn. We're not going to touch the stove, are we? No, I don't want to get a burn. We raised our girls that way in the ministry. We didn't block them. We didn't isolate them from the ministry. They learned from the lives of people who came and went. And they learned. He went down the path and had a sex out of relationship. This guy went, had sex out of, relation, out, of, out of marriage. Out of marriage. Out of marriage. One after another. One guy after another guy. A woman after a woman. And all our girls sat there and said, I don't want the consequences that I've watched in their lives. Those are great examples for me that I am going to patiently wait and get married before we have a sexual relationship. Because it didn't, if it happened to her, if it happened to him, it, happened, it would happen to me. Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians, do you see these examples? If you lust, if you are stubborn and prideful, if you're out there having sexual immorality and you're having idolatry and worshiping idols and not following God, you are going to end in the same results as the Israelites. You'll never make it to the promised land. There's danger. You're not going to have that abundant Christian life. You're going to sit there and a Christian waiting for eternity, waiting for the promise, but you'll be in misery the whole time in this earth. There'll be no joy. There'll be no peace because you've brought things into your life that is just tearing you apart as a child of God. You must learn from the examples. If not, there are consequences. There were serpents that came in and destroyed the Israelites. The destroyer came in and destroyed the Israelites. There was, you're, you're tempting Christ. You're, just, you're, you're tempting like God is not going to deal with the sin in your life. If you think that God is, somehow you can just do the sin and we'll just get to a point where, oh, maybe I could do it one more time and, and God won't do anything. Oh, that's a very dangerous mindset. You're tempting Christ. Do not tempt. Repent. Turn around before it's too late. That there's consequences that come into your life. But learn from these, these, these examples. Do what is right. There are instructions for you and I. So that if even you're prideful, you'll become not prideful. You, you would repent and you would just, just surrender your life to Christ so that you're not fallen because there's no temptation over that has has overcome you except those are common your temptation you find yourself in is common to all men others have been able to be able to walk through by trusting in christ keeping their eye on christ christ has walked them through brought them through it they didn't fall to the temptation we often find and excuse particular temptations. Oh, you don't understand, Pastor. It's a unique situation I found myself in. It's a special exception. No, no, no. It's all common to men. Oh, you won't understand, Pastor. You know, this, I'm sure it's never happened to anybody. And I always look at him and say, oh, no, you'll be amazed at what I've heard. And I'm sure I've heard it more times than you think. So there's nothing you're going to surprise me with. But this same answer in your situation, as with all the others, is to repent and come to Jesus. The same answer. Because God reminds us that our temptation is not unique. Many other men and women of God have faced the same and similar temptations, but have found strength in God to overcome those temptations. It's interesting that people forget that God is faithful. And God is so faithful, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. <coughs> Temptation might come your way. You know why? Because 
Satan is looking to take you out. Ask Job in chapter 1. Ask Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. <laughs> Jesus said, Peter, Satan wants, wants at you and wants to sift you like wheat, man. But guess what? As brothers and sisters... Nothing can touch your life unless it's been father filtered first. So if there's a temptation coming your way and God allows that to come your direction, he doesn't tempt you, but he allows things to come into your life. He'll give you the strength to overcome and not to touch and fall into sin. Temptation's not the sin. It's you contemplating doing it and actually doing it is the sin. The enemy, the world, is going to tempt you constantly. Look at the TVs. Look at the internet. It's constant. But that doesn't mean you have to fall for it or contemplate it. God will give you the strength to not fall for it. If you choose his strength. But he also says in verse 13, he gives you and I the way of escape. You're in the valley. Army surrounds you. They're ready just to come in and pounce on you. The way of escape is God says, divert your eyes. It says, see that narrow path between the rocks? That is how you're going to escape. He just diverts your eyes. He puts it in your mind. This is what you're going to do. This is how you get out. This is you get away. And the question is, will you be obedient and just go and do it? But God always gives you, as we see in the scripture, the way of escape. The question is, will you take it? Will you let him guide you through that escape hatch and get out away from the temptation? Oh, I have so many guys come to me. Oh, pastor, I got a temptation. Oh, it was terrible. And I said, well, why did you fall for it? Tell me your story. Well, God gave you a way out. Yeah, but I thought the only way I could get, you know, get rid of the temptation is by just doing it because it would be like a relief. See, that's the trick of the enemy. Because if you fail in the temptation, God will allow other situations in your life. It will just like a gravitational pull. You will have more like temptation coming your direction and you'll be tested over and over until you learn and to run and to stay away and to trust in his strength to stay away from that temptation. But you, it's your choice. You must choose God's strength and God's way out to relieve and get away from that temptation. Now, he says that he will not give us more than what we can bear. Bearing temptation, overcoming this. There's a little story. Here's a little boy goes into a store. Sees the candy. He's looking at the candy. You can see the little boy just tossing and turning and holding his arms. And, and there's the clerk watching that boy stare at that candy. And the clerk says, son, are you thinking about stealing that candy? Are you going to take that candy? And the little boy says, no, sir. I'm just, I'm just sitting here and I, I, I'm trying not to touch the candy, sir. You know, the temptation was there. And the boy was fighting. I'm not touching the candy. I'm not touching the candy. He was pushing back. He was resisting the candy. Here's the clerk thinking he's just, oh, you're going to take the candy. You're just going to take the candy. No, that boy was resisting. Now, as you really think about that, if the boy's in tune with the fact that his God would give him a way out, an escape, what was the escape in that scenario? The clerk drawing attention to the situation. He shined light on it, did he not? The boy has been brought into light and said, boy, I know what you're th possibly thinking. The boy immediately will go, oh, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I didn't touch it. I'm not going to touch it. I've been resisting to touch it. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Now he's, the light has been shined. He's now able to what? Talk about it and walk away from that temptation of eating, a, taking the candy. It's the same thing in your life and my life. The more you quietly hide and deal with temptation that you seem to keep falling and falling and failing to, bring light to it. Talk to God about it. The next time a temptation comes, immediately start talking and crying out to God. And if need be, bring a brother alongside and confess this, your sins to one another and say, I need help. Bring light to it. And that's when the enemy flees. That's when there's no strength anymore because it's brought into light. Holding into darkness, it, you're just going to continue to spiral out of control. So Paul continues here, and as he finishes, we'll continue next week, Lord willing, the dangerous examples of then and now and how important you and I are to spend time in the scriptures and realize that the Father, our Heavenly Father, has provided for you and I incredible examples, important examples to teach you and fathers to teach your children the ways of the Lord that are right and good. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Father's Day because you're a great and good, good father. We thank you for your examples. We thank you for teaching us and instructing us and encouraging us. Know that we can have the power from you to overcome the sins, the Satan, the 